Support for Longform this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, you guys. I got a great show for you this week. It's with Jamie Loftus. I first came across her work. Um, she did a podcast called the Lolita Podcast that is really hard to describe. I would say it's like a bunch of different deconstructions of uh, what the book Lolita is what the uh, various adaptations are. She goes through all of the different movies that have been made about it, a, a failed musical that was made. It's kind of like a internet deep dive turned into a really well put together multi-part podcast. It was a format that I hadn't really seen yet that I think is interesting. And she rapid fire did four of these. There's um, one, uh, that's called Ack, which is about the comic strip Kathy. Uh, <laughs> prior to that, she did one about Mensa. And there's uh, one more that I'm blanking on right now. Oh, Ghost Church is the, the fourth one. She also has a new book out, kind of in the same tone, though not a podcast, uh, called Raw Dog, that is about the history of the hot dog, all the different places in America you can buy the hot dog. It's a travelogue, but also a pretty deeply researched book about what is inside the hot dog and where it came from. I'm curious about uh, all this hot dog stuff. I didn't see that coming, but I, I am familiar with the podcast, and I, I think it's worth like just underscoring. It's, it's like a legit new idea of which there are not many in podcasting. Like The, the show was, uh, was a new idea. Yeah. And, and for me personally, we get into the show. If you were to give me like a book of like academic essays about Lolita, um, it's probably so sorry to whoever's sending that us that galley. It's probably a pass for me. Whereas if I can sort of take this in in this kind of lighthearted, fun podcasty uh, way, I lighthearted um, probably should have some asterisks uh, next to it because of this topic. But Jamie is her background is as a stand up comedian. And that's very obvious when you hear these shows. They are not dry. They are not academic. They have lots of jokes in them as, uh, you know, something about hot dogs should. So uh, really good one here. Who wants their hot dog dry? Uh, we make this podcast in partnership with Vox. Thanks very much to them for their support. And now here's Aaron with Jamie Loftus. Hello. Welcome to the podcast, Jamie Loftus. Hi, how are you? Um, I have been spending a lot of time with you in my car stereo. So it's a little a little bit there's an uncanny valley effect to um connecting your voice to a face. I want to talk about the book that you came out with this year, but I want to like work our way backwards to there. Cool. So um zooming backwards, how did you get into comedy? What were the first things that you 
performed and, and showed other people that eventually evolved into to what you're doing now? Um, I, I feel like it took me, I, I started doing stand up and sketch in college. And before that, though, I was really shy as a kid. I wanted to be a writer and only a writer. I did not want to be uh, perceived in any physical <laughs> sense. But my mom kind of lovingly pressured me into like, no, you're going to start doing drama club. You're going to join the dance team. You're going to like be perceived. So I think it just took a while for those two things to kind of come together. So in college, I was really into um, like being on the radio. And that was like sort of my first step into having some control, but also sort of performing. And then, yeah, I started doing sketch because I I desperately wanted to. And I just didn't think that I would be able to or wasn't any good at it. And it's bizarre because it was like 10 years ago or so, but even then it was like there was, you know, two girls in a 12-person group. And if you got in, you have to be happy to be there and not frustrated that you're just playing someone's girlfriend the whole time. <laughs> yeah. I've never talked to someone about stand-up as kind of like their starting point for writing in their own voice, like mm. putting together presentation of a set length for an audience, like mm -hmm. what was it like, like the first things you sort of had to write as a piece and present and what was sort of the learning curve of like, this is a set versus like, I'm making a joke where I'm the girlfriend in the sketch troupe. <laughs> um, I think, well, like stand up was incredibly appealing because you just had some control and like you obviously have no control over how it's perceived but I think yeah. I don't know like I, I understand why stand-up is so scary uh conceptually but for me at the time it was like the safest form to try to do what I was going to do because no one can change your words and so I when I started I mean I was horrible I didn't know what I was doing I, I did some like hokey garbage trying to do clubby stuff and that immediately was like, well, I'm not good at that. And, you know, I was in Boston. I love Boston so much, but also, you know, I was like 20, 21 doing these jokes in Boston and there would be guys much older than you that would, you know, offer tags that would be kind of gross. Yeah. Um, so I pretty quickly started doing more like experimental kind of body horror stuff. <laughs> and I'd eat a can of dog food on stage while telling jokes about the healthcare system. I was like butt chugging stuff on stage and stuff like, I, I don't know. It was just like, it, it, it was really fun. It, and it felt like at the time good for me. Cause it, even though it was like a lot of physical punishment and a lot of like weird experimental stuff, it felt like I had control over it. And I felt, you know, in Boston and then after a while in LA, it was like, okay, I, there are spaces where I can do this and kind of figure out what's funny about it, if anything. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, anytime now that I release anything and someone doesn't like it, they find the butt chucking stuff and they're like, well, I don't have to listen to this lady. <laughs> She's the butt chucking lady. For those who are keeping count at home, regular listeners of the long form podcast who are often critical that um, too many people's backstory is like, uh, I was a Harper's intern. We now have butt chugging <laughs> as uh, a, a backstory. So there's something in your work. The, the first thing of yours that I listened to uh, was uh, your podcast about Lolita. And one thing I connect that to what you were just talking about is it seems like you you like to situate your work in a kind of oppositional environment where you're kind of like, I'm going to say something and I can predict that possibly men in the audience are going to yell that back. And I'm going to use this as sort of the premise for the work, like that a certain degree of conflict and provoking a knee jerk reaction is part of like the things that you like to present. I wonder <laughs> if you could like talk a little bit about that and like how you've evolved in terms of like your expectation of the audience's knee jerk reaction to what you're talking about. Yeah. I think that to some extent I've felt myself do that less as time goes on, but it definitely does feel like it's rooted in reality and then also rooted in defensiveness where I just, I feel like, you know, for 
most of my life I've been on the internet and watching the very unkind way that things can be received, how things are taken out of context constantly. And it's like, I feel like anytime I release anything, I'm like gaming out, this could be received in this way, this could be received in this way. How can I express what I'm trying to say, knowing that this is the funnel that it's going into and sort of anticipate stuff like that and get ahead of it? Because I feel like that just has to happen to you like once or twice. And it'll always happen again. But like, there was also some level of insecurity to that, especially with projects like Lolita, where it's very, you know, serious. And it's I, I was definitely not known for doing anything like that. And there was a version of that where I, you know, messed it up gigantically and had stepped too far out of what I did. And so I think I, there was also just like a big fear that, I had crossed out of my lane and I was messing it up. And so I felt like I was constantly being like, this is what I'm trying to say. I understand that this exists, this exists, this exists. But, um, and hopefully, I mean, as, as time's gone on, I, f I feel a little more confident in my ability to get my points across. But especially with stuff like that, I think I was very uh, anticipating that people would be upset. It's um, an overlap I see in your work and, and someone else's podcast work I like a lot who's been on this show, um, Sarah Marshall, where- Oh, Sarah's like one of my best friends in the world. She's oh, so there, okay. okay. So yeah. there's, a, there's both a actual overlap and a metaphorical overlap. And yeah. I guess what I think is that both of you are really interested in not just the thing, but the history of the reaction to the thing. Part of like what I perceive about the Lolita podcast is you can't at this point in 2023 experience Lolita without also experiencing the entire history of the culture's reaction. Yeah. When you start like trying to turn that into episodes, how do you think about like going through the history of something like that, that has like just sort of like an infinite rabbit hole under it? Yeah, I mean, part of that is, I mean, I before I knew Sarah, I was completely inspired by her approach, not just like technically with research, but just in this very emotionally generous way that didn't ignore her own preconceptions coming into something. And my favorite things to talk about are things that like, it feels really difficult to have a completely neutral opinion on, even if you don't fully understand why. So with stuff like Lolita, I mean, I knew that I had gone in with preconceived notions. I knew that I had this very like critical remembering that it had been recommended to me by a children's author and that the book had been taken away from me when I had it in school and, um, you know, kind of finishing it out of spite. Um, <laughs> and, um, which I wonder, I mean, I think probably a lot of kids will have those experiences with the culture around banned books right now who are growing up now. And so I wanted to, I mean, I, I think that with stuff like that, it's like, let me just read this raw and pretend that I have no history with this. And what, how could I feel if I just read it? And I felt really differently. And so uh, that was when I decided I wanted to do the show and kind of work backwards and figure out why did I come in with this assumption? And I mean, it was a process where I started by like, I need to learn more about Nabokov. I need to talk to, you know, experts on his life and find nuggets in there and kind of build out from there. And so it was just like a process of sort of a list. I did the same thing for hot dogs, <laughs> which sounds yeah. bizarre, but like a list of like, here's what I suspect has to do with it mm -hmm. and then sort of cutting and pasting and figuring it out as I go. When you're cutting and pasting and figuring out as you go on these topics, it's like one part scholarly, one part personal, one part like funny jokes that just come up along the way. <laughs> How do you think about the balance of all these things? Like particularly to me, Lolita feels like a very high wire act because not only does it have all of these things, people have really strong feelings about it that maybe like you making a joke. It's like, ah, I can't believe she's making jokes in this thing. You know, <laughs> how do you look at the, the sort of umami of all those elements? Ooh, I love, I love the umami of all these elements. I mean, I think that, yeah, with Lolita, it was, I was, I the production of that show, I still like 
feel. It was so fugue state. It was done completely in lockdown. Um, I mean, I was, it was just like me and my boyfriend sweating in our apartment at the time. And I was like dealing with the existential dread of lockdown by choosing the only topic more depressing and worse to focus on for six <laughs> months uninterrupted. So with the joke stuff, yeah, I'd, I'd done one uh, solo podcast series before then and felt like I learned a lot about like the lines that I wanted to tell. But right, this is a show that heavily discusses some of the worst things in the entire world. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think it was just like trusting my instinct and then gut checking it with both comedians and journalists, which I felt lucky that I had both subsets in my life. Because I, I mean, I just... I really appreciate when a show could be funny for a second and give you like a moment to catch your breath a little bit. Um, but if it's in the wrong place, it is so off-putting and you want to walk into the ocean. So it was just like kind of workshopping where it was. And sometimes like with Lolita, I would be really grateful if something funny did come up, like the Broadway musical that they did. With, oh yeah, In incredible. <laughs> with the, the lyric, who is that viper who loves them post diaper? And you're like, well, there is something for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> here we go. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, it felt like a, a, a balance. And, and also it's like, as long as the jokes sort of are leaning towards making fun of me or the villain, you know, it's just sort of the punching down rule. I've made one reported or constructed series mm -hmm. and I would make a joke and I'd be like, man, if I just came up with that on the cuff uh, on long form, that's pretty funny. But about the third time I heard it, like while editing, mm -hmm. I was just like, I, like, I couldn't, I didn't have any conviction in my jokes. <laughs> so I almost always would end up eventually cutting them. So I'm very interested in like the pulling off of scripted humor. Cause I think it's like, surprisingly difficult thanks yeah i don't know i think that it's like again it there is again like a, a self-conscious knee-jerkiness to it where yep. especially with the reported shows like at this point it's just like well some people know me as a comedian some people have no idea i've ever done stand-up in my life fine uh, but I, there was like a period when I was starting to do those shows where I felt very like, I need to remind them that I can write a joke every once in a while, <laughs> just so I feel like I haven't totally shed my uh, adult identity or whatever. Like, I don't know. It's so bizarre because I, I feel like I started doing this stuff inadvertently to get away from the butt chugging stuff. But then sometimes you're like, but I need, but, but she's in there. I kind of let her out every once in a while. I, I actually want to zoom back to the butt chugging era. One thing I've never really understood about comedy is like you're in Topeka, Kansas touring. You're at the Yuck Yuck Hut. <laughs> like, how does the person who's seeing Jamie Loftus at the Yuck Yuck Hut in Topeka find out about you? Um, that I wish I had a better <laughs> answer for that question because yeah. sometimes the answer is they don't. Uh, but. Um, I think, I mean, I honestly don't fully understand how that worked pre-internet, but I know for me, at least, I didn't even have a, a huge internet following, but um, it would be a combination of like, I, you know, even if I was going to a like smaller city or a place where I had no connections and didn't know anybody, by the mid 2010s, there was like pretty solid infrastructure of like, local comics that just would sort of help me find where I needed to be. Like there's this great comedy collective that's like run by women in Lansing, Michigan. And if they like you, they will f make sure that they can get, you know, 50 people in a room to watch you or however many people in a room to watch you. And there'd be occasional misfires. Like I, you know, I, I enjoy doing clubs sometimes, but other times people fucking hate me. And you're, you know, you're just like, well, that kind of makes sense for this setting. Sure. So I think, you know, it's it's just like hopefully you can find the person who knows the freaks and bring you to them. Like I would do tours with other comics and who are doing kind of the same kind of uh, weird material. And I'd been doing podcasting since 2016, 17. And so like there was a little bit, I mean, not really until I started doing the solo series and I guess like guesting on stuff more. It was, it's 
it was and still is a very slow build, but it's kind of fun because when you meet people afterwards, you're like, I have no idea how you, you know, like, because there are some people who have been following me for, you know, the better part of 10 years and they're like, I was there for the butt chugging part. And then there are (laughs) other people that are like, I was here because you made the saddest podcast of all time. And (laughs) um, so it's kind of fun. It's a good mix of people. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. So you've been doing, um, since 2016, it sounds like, uh, the Bechdel cast. Yeah. Which is a weekly show new movie discussed every week, very much on the like recognizable sort of format wise. And then around the pandemic, you started this series of solo podcasts that there's no good names for any of these formats, but in the (laughs) reported model or in the, uh, on a single topic, uh, model. Yeah. Tell me about like stepping forward with this, like pushing your career into doing this kind of stuff. Like how does one, finance and produce something like this. Like I'm very familiar with how like you call someone every week and talk about a movie you watched kind of podcasting, (laughs) but like, what did you do when you decided you wanted to do work like this? I've like written sort of, at least sort of reported work for a while. I worked for boston.com and Boston for like a while. I got fired from there for doing comedy. Like it's always been this back and forth of like researched reported material and comedy and finding the way to blend it. That was fun for me. And when the comedy got into more psychological and bodily punishment, I was writing these kind of clickbaity, I think, articles for basically no money that I think were pretty popular in the mid-2010s where it was like, I went to this thing and it was weird. And like, <laughs> that style of journalism, which I don't even want to talk down to too much because I think that that's how a lot of young women specifically were able to start writing. There was like either this combination of like the XO Jane writing model where it's like, 
this, this like company paid me $50 to tell them the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life, which I had done stuff like that. And then it was like, and then you can graduate to, I went to somewhere that I don't belong and now I'm making fun of it. And I had also done that. And so the Mensa project started as one of those. I was curious about it. I pitched it and I got paid, you know, 75 bucks or something to write the article, which is less than it costs to take the test. So, you know, working completely at a loss, but it felt like, oh, I have a byline. I'm building to something. It's just this very scrappy, frustrating thing that I know that all writers understand. So it started as like the pieces were written. And then it got to the point where, you know, with Mensa, I took the test. I was very much making fun of them when I took the test. And then I got in and then I kept making fun of them. And then they started shit talking me in this secret Facebook group that had these really scary right wing messaging in addition to, and we hate Jamie. And so I got sucked into it through that because I, you know, thought of it as this group of nerds in this very, I think on my part, reductive way. And uh, it turned out it was far more complicated than that. And so at some point in that project, I was like, oh, this is journalism, but I have already been a bully for the beginning of it. So how do we get this on track? So I finished the project by going to the Mensa annual gathering, which was in Phoenix, Arizona that year. There were people in that group who wanted to talk to me. It was pretty scary. It was very interesting. So all of that happened over the course of a year. And by the end of it, I was like, well, what was all of that for? At that point, I was like working at a not insignificant loss just to know how it finished and feel like I had seen the story through. And so I wrote this really long essay about it. And this was at the same time where um, as a comic, I was putting together this show to take to Edinburgh Fringe. And this was like 2019. And I'm like, ooh, it's going to be the best year ever coming up. Uh, <laughs> and so I was Nothing doing- can stop me now. True. I mean, it really, like, I think as close as I got to, like, my performance career taking off was, like, right before lockdown. And so I I was performing in Scotland. I was writing this essay. And then when the essay was done, I, you know, sent it to my manager. And I was just like, what can I, what do I do? (laughs) Like, what do I do with this? And she's like, well, it's too long to be published somewhere and it's too short to be a book. So maybe you should just record it <laughs> instead. And so that was, I I reworked it from there over the course of a couple months. I, I think it's, I'm not bragging because I think it really sounds like I made it completely by myself um, for better and for worse. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I like, you know, split it into four episodes, did more research, recorded it on the iHeartRadio equipment I had at my house, and I edited it on iMovie and released it independently. So it was just sort of like a thing, like, hey, I, I have to put this somewhere. And um, I had had to, because the Bechtel cast had been on iHeartRadio, I had to pitch them this idea, like contractually. I was like, hey, look at this. And they were like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like they didn't want it. So I released it by myself and that was kind of it. But then people started listening to it. And I think like truly the best thing that ever happened to me in terms of these reported podcasts is that iHeartRadio kind of had to come back and be like, hey, we're sorry. We called that thing confusing and dumb. We want it now, um, which is nice because it's like, you know, that financially that was good for me. And also it was just like a big takeaway of like, no one knows anything and just do what you're going to do and it'll work or it won't, but like no one knows what they're talking about. And so from there, I actually got to work with a producer and an editor and sometimes a research assistant. And that's pretty much it for how the shows work. It's just, it's a very, very small group that's been pretty consistent throughout. Yeah. That, Quality of I just made it myself, like which, you know, I think if you listen through that arc of podcasts that like each one gets like a little bit like higher production value. But even by the end, like it's still like pretty casual in a way where like 
I've had ideas for podcasts or I've taught people ideas before. And if you talk to like a, like a veteran, like radio person, they're like, but there's no tape. <laughs> there's all these things that go into like a, an audio story. And it feels to me like in a lot of your work, you're kind of just like, yeah, we'll just figure that out. Like, oh, we don't have like a recording of Nabokov saying it. So I'm just going to get like my friend to read it. And to me, that was like, I guess refreshing after kind of like hearing a lot of people try to do their version of this American life. It doesn't seem like you're <laughs> imitating a This American Life segment. No, I mean, no, thank you. Uh, yeah, I I think, and again, part of that was just like me being like a little a little stinker and being like, I'm not starting my podcast with, you know, walking on leaves for 45 seconds <laughs> and then being like, is this thing on? Because um, <laughs> I just... I don't know. I do love when um, journalists perform having a personality because it is not often very convincing to me. But anyways, that wasn't specific towards anybody. But I just like I listened to so much of that and like learned from it, too. But it, it yeah, at some point it was like, oh, yeah, I I can't do that. I have to just be myself. And the other thing that I felt very conscious of was just like trying to I don't know, like in a non-patronizing way, try to meet people where they're at on this stuff or whatever the topic is at the beginning and make sure I'm giving everyone the information they need, but not treating them like they don't, they've never read a book before. <laughs> and that's a balance I think about all the time of like, if I lived in the world, but I didn't know a lot about this, how would I want someone to tell it to me? I think part of what that sort of casualness gives you access to is stuff like talking about like Tumblr, Lana Del Rey culture, or like what's happening in the secret men's of Facebook group. And those are really interesting places to me, but they're not places that produce any audio whatsoever. Yeah. They're, they're places that you just have to literally sort of describe. Like, how do you think about talking about that like super online culture, which if I'm not mistaken, is like something you experienced firsthand, but like some of the audiences, let's say of like the Kathy podcast may not have ever had firsthand experience with. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like that's kind of like a, I don't know if I'll always be able to do that. Right. Cause it's like, I can, I think speak very clearly to like my experience of the internet, which in the Lolita show, like fell very cleanly into, but it's like, it would probably take a reporter younger than me to speak about TikTok in that way. Like, I don't think I could do that. I mean, I think it was just, I just I cannot emphasize how much I did not really know what I was doing. <laughs> and so I just tried to find reporters and, and people who I felt good learning from and I didn't feel, I mean, and it was like across board. I know I was like dunking on public like, uh, radio reporters, <laughs> but I listened to a ton of it yeah. because it was like, it works. And like the people who you love who do that style of reporting are like, it's a superpower. So I was trying to find people who could tell me about anything. Like when I was trying to describe Tumblr, I listened to, I forget which one it was, but I listened to like a podcast about a war I didn't know anything about. And I was like, it's basically my version of that. Explaining Tumblr to someone over 50 is someone explaining the Gulf War to me. Like, I don't know. It's, it's just making it for every audience because if I'm over explaining Tumblr, then someone my age is like, oh my God, shut up. It is a website.com. Like, relax. So it's... I had fun getting ready for that portion because I knew how I would explain it to someone who knew what it was. But um, I listened to a bunch of stuff where I knew absolutely nothing and figured out like, what about how they're talking is working for me in a way that probably wouldn't put off someone who knew something about it. This is a topic. I don't know why it comes up a lot, but like I talk about it a lot with tech reporters, actually, I guess, because they're constantly having to describe things that people have no firsthand experience with. Yeah. And what I've heard always from people is that you kind of want to be like one step less dumbed down than you think because people want to feel like you're talking in your sort of native language about mm -hmm. it and that they can learn from your tone. And that's sort of how I felt like, I'll admit, like there was parts of like 
even the Lolita podcast where I was like, whoa, this is deeper in the Lana Del Rey discourse than I had gone. You passed me along the highway and now I'm learning some new things. I think I kind of understand it, but like there's like parts of the Tumblr culture where I'm like, yeah, I was a little too old for like teenage Tumblr lollycon culture (laughs) to like be something I'm totally fluent in. And you should be grateful for that. What a gift. (laughs) Yeah. I really enjoy listening to how other people navigate that challenge. I was also listening to like a lot of old radio lab and stuff like that. And I don't know, or, or like if you do have to explain something super complicated, what is a way you can do through editing or production to make it less of a slog or whatever it is. So I think I came to narrative podcasts through true crime. And like, in some ways, I think true crime is one of the easiest story formats because there's like a through line and you're like, what really happened? Like, we're going to find out. Mm -hmm. And your podcasts, I think of as more of a grab bag format where you're like, here are all these different angles into the Lolita story. There's the book. There's the film, there's the failed Broadway musical, there's the experiences of women who played Lolita. And each of these is almost like an autonomous episode, but then when you put them together, they build on themselves. Mm. When you're putting this together, like, how do you know if you have enough for a whole episode on a topic? And also, how do you think about those topics, like fusing together to form the like, big transformer vehicle out of all the little piece (laughs) transformer vehicles. It's just a lot of trial and error. Mm. I think sometimes I I often, I think undershoot how much there is to like, there, there are many episodes that I had to split into and on that show and the Kathy show, we were working so close to the deadline that it would be like, oh, this has to be too, because I can't finish it. So, all right, easy decision made. But yeah, I think with Lolita, I knew like the broad strokes of I have to consume this. I have to talk to people involved with the movie, with the Broadway show, whoever will talk to me really. And when I was about halfway finished, it felt like my real takeaway sort of started to calcify. And that was when I started sort of trying to tease out the real world's implications of like, because this story was received in this way and is remembered in this way, what does that mean for survivors of CSA? Like what, how does that apply to this bigger framework? Which is like the more difficult part of the show, but And I didn't really know if that was where it was going to end up going, but it just felt like the more interviews I was doing, even during the silly parts, it's like, it's all feeding into this greater narrative about how stories about CSA are treated and how they're received. And once I realized that, that was sort of like the push and the thrust for the rest of the show. Yeah, it seems like the scary part of like embracing the grab bag format. And some of this is actually in Raw Dog, your book about hot dogs, where you're like, you know, you've eaten the like 75th hot dog and you've still got X hot dogs to go. And you're kind of (laughs) like, where is this going? You know, like where how do I end this journey? Does this add up and like mean anything? Or have I literally just been like driving around getting hot dogs everywhere as a, like a form of purgatory. (laughs) Tell me about the sort of like Genesis of the hot dog project. And then like how you thought about turning it into like a completed narrative that has like a beginning, middle and end. Yeah. Again, I like, I just didn't, I had an outline of what I wanted to do, but I didn't know the covering hot dogs was, it was kind of fun. Once um, I had finished my year in Mensa and iHeartRadio had basically been like, all right, uh, we're going to just do more of whatever that is. And that was amazing because it meant that I had all of this. I had a lot of creative freedom on what I covered and how I covered it. And so as frustrating as it was at the time that when I was working on my year in Mensa, I didn't get any support from them financially or what or whatever, it it worked out, I think, in the long run because I was like, the way that I will give you something is that you will leave me alone. And that sort of was how 
I got to do it there for, and, and still for the most part get to do it now. And that feels like a huge gift. And so anyways, when I started working with them, I had this like list of like, here are topics I could spend six or more months with and be totally happy. And it was like, Lolita, Kathy Comics, Hot Dogs. Like it was like 10 <laughs> different things. And I was like pushing for hot dogs years ago. And they were like, no, <laughs> no. Like I was, there was a point where it was like between Lolita, hot dogs and like one other thing. And they're like, you're doing Lolita, best of luck. And <laughs> <laughs> so it just was like, it just didn't end up happening. And I had met this amazing editor who I ended up working with, Allie Fisher, who was like, hey, you're basically writing a book to do these podcasts that you're doing. Like, you could also write a book. And that was right before lockdown. I was like, I could not and I will not. But eventually it seemed like, you know, when I talked to her about my ideas, she was into the hot dog idea. And I was like, all right, I will write a book <laughs> as long as it gets to be about hot dogs. <laughs> um so I was just really excited about it. That This was in summer 2021. And it was a very fast process to start. Like once the contract was like completed, I left in the next week, I think, to go on this like summer long road trip. And the book was originally called like 12 Ways to Look at a Hot Dog. And then I miraculously ended up selling people on the title Raw Dog, which is great. <laughs> but I was like, here, you know, 12 different sort of cultural perspectives into it that I think will be relevant, but I have to take the trip and then I'll let you know. And that those subjects did change a fair amount just based on like where I got, like I was not expecting to like fall in love with Joey Chestnut, but (laughs) life happened and I did. And then I had to write, you know, 40 pages about that or whatever. So again, it was just, like I really appreciate having the freedom to go into a topic with enthusiasm and instead of going in with here are the things I have to talk about, it's like trying to be as open as I can with the assumption that there are things that I need to talk about that I don't know about yet. One thing that I think makes raw dog work that is not a skill I think everyone natively has is like you go to all these like hot dog stands all over the country and you have these like experiences with the people who live there it would be very repetitive if you were just talking about the hot dogs but you're like able to sort of like generate these like funny moments with people like when you're doing that even also in the context of mensa when you're like there in person like what do you do to try to like make something happen because i go to all kinds of like food establishments nothing ever happens to me i don't really talk to anyone (laughs) i don't no one ever interacts with me because i guess i like put off like a don't interact with me vibe how do you make yourself open to the universe that way and then turn it into writing um i think that like i've found and i'm sure like you interview people all the time it's like if someone wants to talk I will let them talk and especially with small towns or or just going around and talking to people, it's like most people want to be asked about themselves and whoever asks you about yourself really. And I I like hearing about people. I I like, you know, sitting at a hot dog stand and be like, okay, that's the person who's yelling. I feel like I've lucked out for the hot dog book. I was traveling with somebody, which I'm very grateful I was because after being in a couple of situations with Mensa that genuinely did feel unsafe, it was like, okay, I can't go to the hospital over this. It's hot dogs. But it was it was kind of nice because I think especially like men don't mind talking at your head for 500 hours. And if I've found a way to turn that into getting paid for that, that's great. And I think I lucked out with the timing too, because this was like summer 2021, where even if you're not a weird person, you were acting weird because you had just like stumbled out of your house after a year and you're like, I'm a person. And just everyone was acting really weird. As someone who's been able to embrace like multiple formats from like 
butt chugging to like fringe festival, one person show to podcasting, to writing a book. There's a certain kind of person who's like, I have to master this before I ever want to like put something out. I need to spend 10 years as a radio intern before I make a podcast. And it seems like you're pretty like hands on and like head first into these things. What advice would you give to someone who wants to do something like this, but feels sort of held back by like, well, I don't know everything about it yet? I think that if you're leading with really caring about what you're doing, and I know people will disagree with me because it's like I'm dating an audio engineer and sometimes he's like, Jamie, this sounds like dog shit. I'm like, well, (laughs) this is like, this is not my concern. (laughs) This is. Although it is a concern and I just am like a big proponent and I'm lucky to have the freedom to do stuff that I really am interested in and really care about and really want to know more about. And I think that especially with audio stories, people can like feel that. You can feel like if, if someone's not fully in it with you, I think that that's the most important thing. And also that like it probably won't work the first time because I I got super lucky with my year in Mensa and getting to do what I do now. But it was like, whatever, years of trial and error in comedy, in writing and stuff that like no one's really seen and probably never will. But it felt important. And I think that comedy has been super helpful to me in that way because it's so based on failing every night sometimes that I wasn't afraid of failure in the same way because it's just like, well, that's just, that's going to happen to me at some point this week. Why not in this format? I really like the framing of like, that is not my concern. Like you can't be concerned about every possible thing, like audio quality and like, how am I going to do this? Like each of these things is sort of like a drain and you have to choose which ones matter to you when you brought in like an editor into the process, like what was it like fusing your, that is not my concern with someone else's that is not my concern and comparing what the concerns were. Well, it turns out it very much is my concern and should be is <laughs> 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 what I learned. Um, yeah, it, it was fun. Cause my year in Mensa, I, I edited by myself. Lolita podcast. That was a f- fun one for and and I feel like this I've said this in maybe like one other time and it's like ruined the show for people but I I I did the first pass of edits on that show and then I would hand it off to an editor and after that show they're like Jamie we are not letting you do that anymore because I was so self-conscious of how my voice sounded I was editing out every time I breathed so if you listen (laughs) to that show I do not take a breath for 10 hours (laughs) <laughs> and I I mean I very much do care about it and I it's not something that comes natural to me. I feel like I'm very lucky to work with an editor who is patient and also knows me, likes comedy and and is a really smart, you know, technical editor because otherwise I think I would be a very frustrating person to work with. <laughs> So I, it's been really cool to to work with people who are technically minded and do not want my shows to sound like dog shit. And I feel like it's opened me up creatively to feel safer to do my end of stuff and not feel like I have to get tangled in, will this come off? Will this sound okay? And like developing that relationship with an editor, my editor Ian is like so Awesome. And it, and and it's fun because now I get to kind of think technically and know that he can execute it and we can figure it out together. Your work, like when you appear in the work, often it will be like dark moments of your life, past or present. The hot dog book, um, spoiler alert, the relationship that starts the book does not um, make it till the end of the book. The Lolita podcast touches on like your own experiences of abuse. Yeah. Um, overall, you're not like shy about likening the topics that you're talking about to things that have happened in your own life that are not like always happy mm-hmm. things. What is the role of that in your work? Like as someone who's like butt chugged on stage, <laughs> how do you think about like what parts of yourself 
to put forward in your work and which not to. Cause usually when someone like in a podcast appears in the podcast, they're like, I was so obsessed with this true crime thing. It was like straining my family relationships. And it's like, okay, all right, calm, calm down. Like <laughs> this is a different kind of a connection to, to your personhood. Yeah. I, I love hearing about how other people choose or don't choose to put themselves and their own work. I think my experience of that, like even going back to the like XO Jane style confessional article, I started working as a writer with the assumption that sharing the darkest parts of yourself would result in something good, which I don't think is true. And like now, (laughs) you know, universally and I look back on those times and like where I was, you know, 22 and writing about horrible stuff, you know, thinking that like this is going to like I I am certainly not being exploited in this process by doing this for $50 for anyone to see for the rest of my life and kind of working backwards from that place where I feel like I am now far more careful about what I do and don't share about myself. I wonder um I don't know. I haven't talked about this a lot with people, but I wonder if there are other writers who came up at the same time who have had that experience where I think I came in like hot, whereas like sharing the worst things ever is going to save me and by extension, the world. And, you know, it's not saving you or the world. You are the same person. And now all this stuff is available to, to know about you. Now it feels like far more intentional. And the good thing is it's like, because that was where I started, I feel comfortable sharing stuff about myself. There's, I feel like it's like there's almost no reason not to. There's already so much that <laughs> you could know if you wanted to. But especially with stuff like Lolita and and the hot dog book where it's like I, tr- I try to really be more intentional and have parts of my life that are just for myself, which truly when I was like, a young adult did not occur to me as something that people could or should do. So now it's, yeah, I don't know. I was really back and forth when I was writing the book about whether to like include elements of this relationship that didn't work out, but it felt like the right thing to do because otherwise you would just have to erase somebody or lie. And, you know, how can I be honest about that without it overshadowing hot dogs? Because obviously you're there for hot dogs. You don't care if things worked out with me and my boyfriend, who cares? (laughs) But also I don't want to lie or like, you know, take people out of the story who are an important part of it. So you did like four series in pretty short amount of time, what, like two, three years and a book. I mean, this is like, this is a lot faster than your average person is working. What is doing these things on a deadline? Like you described on the Kathy one, having to do two episodes. Cause like the deadline was there and you weren't ready. Like what have you learned about like doing this stuff like on a deadline and how does that sort of impact the work? Um, it definitely impacts the work. I, I feel like right now I'm reaching a point where I'm like, that's not sustainable for your whole life. You'll die. Um, and <laughs> realizing that at the same at the same point where you, you also feel that pressure of like, well, I've done it before. Why not just keep doing it? And that feels, I don't know. I wonder how, how you feel about this, where it's especially in like podcasting where there's so much pressure to like put stuff out and put stuff out and put stuff out. I felt like once I established a pace of working as fast as I was, which is also like just has to do with my own OCD (laughs) uh, journey, as well as when I made, you know, like two out of four of those shows, I was completely in lockdown. I had nowhere to go. I had nowhere to be. And it established this pace that is probably unsustainable. And so right now I'm sort of in this weird place where I'm like, how do I slow down? Can I slow down? And if I don't slow down, will the work suffer as a result? So these are the uh, existential questions. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I mean, I think a lot of people have hit that place where there's a lot, there's not a lot of differentiation to audiences understanding of like how hard it is to make like a narrative podcast and like an interview show. This doesn't come up for us very much. It takes me literally like one hour to record this interview. And then like I pass it off to an editor and I'm done. It's not a huge part of my life. Whereas these like produced shows are like really big 
chunks of your life and people, mm-hmm. you know, your audience would probably like you to do like a few every year, but you would, uh, as you say, probably burn. Most of the people I know who've tried to do that have like burnt out and stopped doing podcasts. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I, I really enjoy it. And so it's like, how do you find a way to, to continue? And also like, I think how I've been feeling recently is like, how do you keep things interesting for yourself? Cause like what we were talking about earlier, I feel like if I'm not having a good time and I'm, I'm getting bored, yeah, you, you like people will be able to feel it. And then what's the point? Yeah. So right now I, I also feel like, you know, I've, I really enjoyed doing deep dive shows. There's a million more things I could learn about in that format, but I also don't want to trap myself there forever because it works. And so, yeah, I'm like trying to challenge myself to go into a deep dive and put it out in a different way. Yeah. I mean, I think what I, I, my final question was going to be like that you, you know, you set off with that list that had like a uh, hot dogs, Lolita and Kathy on it. The list that horrified iHeartMedia. They couldn't pick which one they wanted to do the least. <laughs> You've now worked your way through that list, gotten revenge on <laughs> iHeartMedia who now want to work with you. Is there like a new list for you or like a new format that you have in your mind that you think would be an interesting thing to put into podcasts? Yeah, I mean, it's like I'm just always I, I want to challenge myself and uh, not uh, I, I don't know. The, the the show I'm working on right now is, you know, like I am the lead reporter on the project, but I'm, I'm trying to like be like, oh, what would it feel like to do a show where I <laughs> am not the inherent protagonist, you know, and uh-huh. um, work with other people and and will it work if I am helping someone else tell their story instead of be leading with like I am Jamie this is important to me let's talk about it for 10 hours which I love but I also think you know on a long enough timeline people are like Jamie shut the hell up and they would probably and they would be right <laughs> so um so in podcasting I I'm trying to focus on that and and try a version of what I do that centers on somebody else and helping them tell their story and get themselves out the way I feel like I've been lucky to. And then I still love doing like goofy research projects. Like that's why I did Mensa last year. Uh, last October, I worked at a haunted hayride for a month just to just to see what that would be like and didn't tell anybody who I was or what I was doing because I didn't know what I was doing and had an absolutely unhinged time and now I'm writing about that. So it's just like I just want to have I just want to have fun, <laughs> I think. I have a lot of uh, haunted hate ride questions for you, but I'll just I'm just going to wait I'm just going to wait for it. Cue that up for the future. I love talking about the hayride so much. It's so wild. <laughs> I I went on a haunted hayride with my daughter when she was about 2 years uh-huh. old. And it was like a really budget haunted hayride that had like no scares, except at the very end, one guy like ran out of the pumpkin patch and it, she's Mm -hmm. like terrified. It's like still like her number one fear experience was this really (laughs) crappy haunted hayride we went on. So um, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, haunted hayrides can cause drama. Oh, Haunted Hayrides are the, I guess, like my main takeaway, because our Haunted Hayride was 0% scary. I played Murder Nurse 2 badly, but I would still say I was in the top 50 percentile of actors. It was just kind of a mess. Um, But it was more of like the OSHA violation of it all was the true, was the true horror. Um, It was just wild. I don't know. I had, I had a great time. I still am in the group chat with my Hayride friends. Um, it, it's a very theater camp energy over there. <laughs> well, I look forward to that. Uh, thank you very much for this interview. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. And that was the long form podcast. Thanks very much to Jackie Sajiko for editing this episode. Thanks to Susan Peterson for doing the show notes. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to my guest, Jamie Loftus. Get her book, Raw Dog. Thanks to everyone over at Vox Media. We appreciate everything they do to help us make the show, which will have a new episode next week. 
Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs> 